All right, let's turn now to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. We've spent some time talking about who it is that calls us to worship. Now we need to reflect on whom does God call to worship? Well, I suppose, I, I think I'm going to dispense with the, the slides because that's going to slow us down and I have to hop, skip, and jump over some of them anyway. Um, so let me just talk through Psalm 24. Whom does God call to worship? Well, let's just think about how we answer that. Unfortunately, in some places, the answer to that question is whoever has the right, our kind of skin. There's still places where whoever has the right social status, whoever can make significant contribution to our bank account or the church, whoever will dress right, to those we say, come, worship with us. Be just like us. In some, especially churches with seeker-sensitive passions, the answer is simply, whoever. Y'all come. As if acceptable worship is possible by everybody, and so we gear our services to attract the marginal and the unsaved. The Sunday morning becomes a get-together, come-as-you-are event, and there's a song like that out there. Come, now is the time to worship. Come, now is the time to give your... Come, just as you are to worship, just as you are before your God. Really. I found this interesting bulletin note from Britain. We welcome you to the community, full stop. You do not need to be anything. You don't need to be married with kids or teetotal or employed or in good health. You certainly don't need to be holy. You can come from any background, religious, social, cultural, racial. Jesus accepts everyone as they are, and we aim to do the same. Well, on the surface, that sounds really good, doesn't it? But does the Lord call everyone to worship? Now, I know that the call to salvation is absolutely unconditional. Come as you are. No preconditions. When we were dead in trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. There's no bar to meet before the call to salvation. But, but in the Scriptures, the call to worship and the call to salvation are quite different. When God came to the Israelites in Egypt, he didn't say, all right, as soon as you've measured up to all of these standards, here, I'll give you the Ten Commandments. As soon as you can check off as you keep them all, I'll get you out of here. He didn't do that. He came to the Israelites in Egypt just as they were and said, come, we're getting out of here. Unconditional salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord alone Faith plus nothing. What did it take to get Israel out of Egypt? Nothing but trust that God would keep those walls of water up. It's all it took. No preconditions. Ethical, whatever else. And it's the same with our salvation. But let's look at Psalm 23, which is the ultimate 
worship psalm. Notice how he begins and how he ends. It's actually framed with a reminder of who it is that calls us to worship. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it, for he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. That's the beginning. Now look at the end. Verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the glorious king may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift up and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this glorious king? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. There's the reminder. Who is the object of worship? But then in between, look at verse 3. Here's the question. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand? Now let's go back to the metaphor of Nebuchadnezzar. If you're invited to Nebuchadnezzar's uh, uh, throne room, at the king's invitation... You fall down in front of him, and you don't dare stand until he gestures you to stand, either with a tap on the shoulder with his mace or the invitation, stand that I may speak with you. Have you ever noticed that in Scripture when God speaks to people, they're never on their faces? Ezekiel's great vision at the front end of the book of Ezekiel, he sees this awesome vision, and he worships. He throws himself down, and the Lord says, Stand that I may speak with you. Well, here, we're in an audience with a great king, and we've come before him, and we are there. And now the question is, who may ascend, who may, who's invited, and who may stand? Which is to say, whose worship is acceptable to God? That's the question. And it's curious that it isn't everybody. Did you notice? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Whom does he invite? Who may stand in his holy place? And now you have it. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, that one shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. Did you see that? Let's look at these four phrases. Who may stand? Whom does, to whom does God say, rise? that I may speak with you. You see, this is an audience with him. You've come to hear his voice. Some who come before Nebuchadnezzar are shooed out, dismissed. Their worship is unacceptable. In this case, who is it? First of all, the one who has clean hands. Now, what does that mean? Obviously, the hands here represent one's actions, one's deeds. Clean hands. Our grandson from Augusta was with us for a week, and 
He's homeschooled and he's a bit nerdish. He's 14. What did he want to do all week? Watch Shakespeare movies. And we watched Macbeth. I had forgotten how dark that thing is. Out, out, damn spot. The hands are dirty. What are the hands here? Well, if you want an idea, turn back to Psalm 15, which in a sense is commentary on this. Psalm 15 begins by asking the same question. He knows, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill? This is whose worship is acceptable. And then he gives a long list of things. Oh, this looks like work salvation. We are so scared of that. But look at this. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness, who speaks truth in his heart, doesn't slander with his tongue, does, does, nor does evil to his neighbor, doesn't take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes are reprobate is despised. He who honors those who fear the Lord, he swears to, to his own hurt and doesn't change. He does not put out his money at interest. He doesn't take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shit. This person's worship is acceptable. Oh, really? So this isn't a come-as-you-are party. Who may stand? The person with clean hands. And of course, by now we realize that if our life, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, hasn't been a life of worship, what we do in church on Sunday morning cannot be true worship. There are lots of scriptures that talk about this. Micah asks the question, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before my God on high? And he has a cultic answer. What impresses God? Shall I come with burnt offerings, yearling calves? Does the Lord delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Will God be impressed if I bring my child as a sacrifice? And of course, to the ancient pagans, that was not perverse. Child sacrifice wasn't a sin to the pagans. It was the ultimate demonstration of piety. You can't show greater love for your God than that, or desperation, because you want to smooth the God's face, remove the frown. Is this, will this impress God? Look at Micah's answer. He has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love chesed, mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God asks. He doesn't ask for elaborate ritual. Isaiah talks about this in chapter 1. Who has asked of you this trampling of my courts? Seek justice. Learn to do good. 
Deuteronomy 10, 12. And what now does the Lord require of you, Israel, but to fear God, walk in His ways, love Him, serve Him, and keep His commands. That's pretty much all of life, isn't it? That is loving the Lord your God with all your inner being, with all your body, and with all your resources. The person with clean hands is the person whose life demonstrates or whose life is a life of worship. True worship involves reverential acts of submission and homage, not just bowing in church, but in how I treat that cashier at the grocery store when she gets the numbers wrong. And I'm frustrated, and I feel like pounding the table. Can't you ever get anything right around here? Really? True worship, clean hands. What else? A pure heart. Oh, that changes it from mere externalism. Because what your hands do arise from what's in here. So let's get this one right as well, which is why Moses says, circumcise therefore your hearts. And in the end, he says, the Lord will circumcise your hearts to love him and to walk in his ways. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. We can fake piety too, but you can't fake your heart. The problem with us all is that our hearts are desperately wicked. and disqualify us naturally from the invitation to worship. But recognize that in all of this, we're talking to Israelites. We're talking to people who claim to be the people of God. The ungodly aren't called to worship. They can't worship rightly. The only proper worship for an unbeliever is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, yes, they should always feel welcome in our worship, but they really should never feel at home. Think about that. This is the family of God invited to celebrate His grace. And if they come, they should feel, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Which is why in our church, whenever we have the Lord's Supper, we are very careful to let unbelievers know, please pass it by, don't take. We don't want to give them the illusion represented by that book, I'm okay, you're okay. When in actual fact, I'm a mess, and I need the grace of God in my life. 
The call to worship is not for everybody. Unbelievers cannot worship acceptably, except to say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. So, clean hands, pure heart. What else? Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood. I think this is a, this is a way of talking about idolatry. Again, remember the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your inner being, with all your body, and with all your resources, which means nothing left over for any other God. And if we have a part of our lives that is devoted to other gods, we will not be beckoned to stand. We will not be invited. And then finally, who has not sworn deceitfully? Well, this is simply a matter of your life is completely in tune with your confession. You keep your word. You're faithful in all these things. Now look at the promise to those who have this. That person who comes with clean hands, pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, has not sworn that person will receive a blessing from the Lord. And that's what we need. All of us are under the curse. And what a cursed world needs so desperately is the blessing. And you could start with the blessing of Aaron. The Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord smile upon you. I love that expression. Be gracious to you and give you peace. That's what awaits those who worship. Not only that, and they will receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is a difficult one. Does this mean God will impute his righteousness to them? That's a, not, that's, that, that's a quick way of going. But I have a, a sense that this is a parallel expression to the previous. They will receive a blessing, which is a verbal declaration. Lord be with you. Lord is with you. And I think this is also a declaration. You are righteous. The Lord affirms. The Lord approves. The Lord declares you. Of course, you have this in the New Testament. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Remember the context? It's a magnificent context. And as much as you've done to the least of these, my brothers, you've done what? You visited the sick. Or, or, or you've taken care of the sick, you've clothed the naked, and you've visited those who are in prison. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, of course, we have to be careful here, don't we? Who has clean hands? Nobody's hands are perfectly clean. Nobody's heart is perfectly pure. Nobody has no idols. But you know, did you know that God has never expected perfection? He 
He longs for it, but he doesn't actually expect it. Name one perfect person in the Bible. Abraham, he said, he abuses his wife. David, I've even got problems with Moses and Samuel and Jeremiah, all the big boys. Even Josiah, what's he doing trying to stop the Pharaoh? And the Pharaoh lectures him about, don't interfere with what God is doing. I mean, it's all, there's nobody perfect. But you know what? That's why God provided the sacrifices. Because he knew there is no perfection. The brilliant gospel is that there is forgiveness. My good friend John Oswald has a great book on called to be holy in which he talks about this word, be perfect. And actually, the strongest expression is in the New Testament, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Try that. What does perfection mean? It means that my heart and my life is totally oriented to God. Doesn't mean I never trip, but it means that when I trip, I admit I've tripped and I repent. If we are faithful, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. He's writing to believers to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We, I, need, I don't know about you, but I need daily cleansing. There's nobody who is absolutely perfect. What he's talking about here is people who are on track, on track, devoted to God with their whole beings, everything. These are the people. And of course, only God can give us that kind of heart. And even after he gives us that kind of heart, only he can forgive us when our lives don't live up to the confession of the heart. So that this is an expression of the ideal, but the psalmist himself knows that he, if this is a psalm of David, as the text says, David knows I'm exhibit A for those who aren't perfect. But God. Well, this is why Micah says, what does the Lord your God require? But to do justice, to love chesed, and to walk humbly with your God. Do you know that that's a very rare expression in Scripture? Walking with God? How many people walked with God in the Bible? Noah walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Who else? Not many people. There are lots of references to walking in the ways of the Lord or walking after God or whatever, but walking with God. That's different from having God walk with us. Walking with God is an expression of intimate fellowship. But I think this is why Micah adds, who walk humbly with their God. Do you know what that means? 
That means that when I'm walking with God, I'm not saying, Lord, aren't you lucky? You get me for your company. It's the opposite. Always as we walk with God, we admit, I can't believe it. He invited me to walk with him. What a treat. What a privilege. What an honor. Despite my flaws. We're not talking here about sinless perfection. None of us will ever be accepted by God if that's what we're looking for. And God doesn't accept. Why then did he give all the sacrifices in the Old Testament? Read Leviticus. My favorite, te my favorite text in all of Scripture, Leviticus 4, 5, and 6. All these sacrifices? Read them out loud and catch the refrain. You know, he gives all the regulations if you do a sin offering and the guilt offering, all the rest. But every one of them ends with, and they will be forgiven, and they will be forgiven, and they will be forgiven, and they will be forgiven. Eight times they will be forgiven. That is gospel. God didn't expect for perfection. He provided a way for the imperfect. But he calls for us to be wholly devoted to him, determined to live for him with hearts transplanted and circumcised and really even transplanted hands and brains and everything else people made after God's image. This is an awesome privilege. God invites us to worship, not because of what we have to offer him, but in response to all that he has offered us. What a grace. Of course, all of life is worship. Don't limit it to what we do in church. I hope we're worshiping here today. I hope God is speaking to us and our ears are open to letting him teach us. But as we leave here, we go home and get ready for bed. That's worship. And we lie down in perfect peace because God is with us. <laughs> That's worship. And we get up in the morning. We come back, and tomorrow afternoon, you, some of you have to mow your lawn. That's worship. Some of you have to take care of weeds and chipmunks. Oh, I... How can I take care of chipmunks in my yard as an act of worship? That's a challenge. I mean, they're so cute. But we've got the prairie path right behind us, and there are hundreds of chipmunks. And they're excavating under our house. They're not an endangered species. How do I take care of them? You know what? I do it with a heavy heart. This is not fun. Life is taken. I mean, the mice in the basement last week. Oy vey, we got mice in the basement. It hurts when we have to do that 
That's worship. All of life is worship. God has put us here to take care of His world for Him. That's worship. The first act of worship in the Garden of Eden. Eden. Adam. And to Adam He said, serve the garden and guard it. That's not church. That's taking care of God's world. That's worship. Whose worship is accepted? Those who walk humbly with God, whose lives are clean. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You for Jesus, our Savior. If it were left to us, we are of all most miserable because in our own strength, none of us can live for You. But we thank You for forgiveness, for salvation, for daily cleansing. We thank You for Your Spirit who guides us in truth but reminds us of our sin and prods us to confess. Help us, O Lord, to love You with our whole beings, our whole heart, everything devoted to You. For the glory of Your magnificent name and the celebration of Your grace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.